you turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11, chapters 11 and 12 tonight, next week we'll be having our our final dinner together, more than likely because of the weather more than anything else. starts getting a little chilly in October and hard to get all of us outside, and we just don't fit inside if we're eating. So, uh, But we are going to continue to do a once-a-month time of just worship and prayer. I think that that's been a blessing for everyone, and so we're going to continue doing that until the Lord tells us differently. But as we uh, begin to wrap up here in, in Hosea, you're going to see a consistent theme and that is the Lord's trying to drive home a singular point. And that point really is that what he's looking for us to do, whether it be an individual, whether it be a nation like Israel, whether it be a Christian nation like we are purported to be uh, here in America, whether it's a group of people who are called by his name, What he expects of us when we know that we have transgressed, when we've gone the wrong direction, is for us to hear his voice, turn from that sin, turn from the wickedness, repent, be healed, and be restored so that we'll have that security of walking in the midst of his love and his blessings. God's word says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. So we know that the Lord really ultimately has no desire nor design uh, in his perfect will to see people go through the things that they go through. That's us individually, that's nations on this earth, and it's certainly his children whom he covenanted with through Abraham. And so tonight, love and discipline. Last time, uh, don't plant cactus. This This is an appendage to that message, if you will. And we'll wrap up in our final study after our time next week. And then we're going to be moving on to the book of Joel. And so I want to encourage you to read ahead uh, to the book of Joel. We may, after that, take a break. We have not yet done the book of Jeremiah, and I'm praying over that. So uh, we'll see. We're staying in the Old Testament here on Wednesday night, so we'll see what the Lord does. So tonight, a couple of verses up there for you. And I want you to see this in practice and in principle in both the Old and the New Testament. You'll notice here in Deuteronomy 8.5, Uh, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. And it's very, very important that you understand what the word chastening is. A chastening is not a beating to a bloody pulp and death. Okay? A chastening is not God doing all that he can do in his sovereign might to make sure that you get the point. A chastening indicates an appropriate punishment to get the attention of the one chastened to cause the proper result. Now, in understanding that, that means that as we would think of appropriate, God's not going to hit you with an atomic bomb, so to speak, because you jaywalked. Okay, his, his chastening, his getting of our attention, the force necessary to do so is appropriate. Notice why, because the chastening of God is as the chastening of a father to a son. And it's extremely important that you understand that facet of it. 
When I chasten my sons, when I use the appropriate measure to get their attention, to cause a change of action in some behavior, in some way or manner of speaking, I do so appropriate to the action, and I do it because I love them. Not because I hate them. Because I know that that thing, whatever it is, continued to its conclusion, leaves them in the place of gathering steam towards something that's yet worse, and so I know the end result of it is disaster, perhaps even death. That's why your Bible says that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof, the end of it, its end will be ultimately death. So when God gets our attention by whatever means, we call it chastening, maybe you call it getting in trouble, maybe you call it when God sends you to the woodshed. Some of us actually had woodsheds going. We had a woodshed at our house in Poway. It was a big woodshed, in fact, because my grandma had a fireplace that you could throw cars into. I don't even know what they were thinking when they built it. You could like you could take the tree without taking the limbs off of it, stick it in the fireplace. It's huge. At least it seemed so to me. But when you got taken to the woodshed, it was not a good thing. But you were never afraid you were going to die. You just knew it wasn't going to be good. That's chastening. Why? Because if you were like me, you see, you, you, you did things like loaded your wrist rocket slingshot with BBs and ball bearings and shot them at your brother, your uncle, or windows in grandma's house. Probably shouldn't do that. can lead to serious injury. God knows those things. There's a way that seems right to us. But the end of it's not good. So because God loves us, just like I love my sons, my dad loved me, my grandpa loved my dad, you chasten those whom you love. New Testament says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? Notice the emphasis, both the Old and the New Testament, very clear. These are what we call Loved ones, amen? Specifically our children, amen? Motivation is exactly as we would believe it to be because we know God's character. It's love. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged by him when you are rebuked by him. You you see what it goes on then to say in verse 6 is, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You get the picture? Love and discipline absolutely go together. Chastening and love, you could say, go together. And it says in verse 7 of Hebrews 12, For if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. Again, the emphasis is our relationship. What are we as the church known by in, in the New Testament? Are we not the sons and daughters of God? Are we not His beloved? Are we not His family? Are we not the recipients of the inheritance as the adopted children of the Lord Most High? 
You, you see, so when the Lord allows things in our lives that are circumstantially not fun, difficult, hard, painful, maybe even to some degree we would say destructive. In other words, maybe you're, you're prone to doing something that's really evil and, and God allows a car accident in your life. To get your attention. He does those things because he loves us. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all of you have become partakers, then you're legitimate and not sons. And furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed in a few days chastened us as it seemed best, but he for our profit that we might become partakers of his. It's a beautiful picture of why God allows what he allows in the lives of his beloved people. And so tonight as we move on into Hosea chapter 11, that is the context God says, hey, man, don't plant cactus. I do not want you in prickly, gnarly situations. But if you do, you can be well assured that there will absolutely be consequences that will come into your life. And so to begin tonight's study in chapter 11, God gives the Jewish people this incredible picture of how he has dealt with them. He's dealt with them in the past in innumerable ways that have started out, look, I delivered you, and then you went awry, and then I allowed you to be chastened. I then delivered you again, and you went awry, and I allowed you to be chastened. I delivered you again, and you went awry, and I allowed you you to be chastened. And so we're going to see these things, a little bit of a history lesson here. And so... As we move forward into these things, I would draw your attention, most of you know this, but the book of Deuteronomy uh, is basically uh, Moses' farewell address, if you will, to the children of Israel. They're standing on the edge of the promised land. They're looking across the river Jordan. They're looking at Canaan, this land of promise, and Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy because he is not going to be allowed to enter into the promised land. And so he writes it to them so that they would remember. He uses that word 14 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember what God did. Remember this. Remember that. And so as the Lord brings this history lesson to us, it's so we can remember. And I want you to look now at verse 1 of chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. God is speaking, and he's now speaking to them in a narrative. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So he's demonstrating his love that he had for them at the Exodus. And as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to Baals, and they burned incense under the carved images. You see, what God is saying here is, is look, you remember the little story of the Exodus? Here you are, you're, you're in this land, you've been there for 400 years, 
You've been making mud bricks without straw. You've been getting abused. You've been taken advantage of. You've been beat up, chewed on, spit out by the world, which at that time was Egypt. Amen. It's a type for us, but it literally was the world that the world knew at that time. The most powerful empire on earth was Egypt. Chewed them up, spit them out. He says, you know what? I called you out of Egypt. I took care of you. And what did you do? You turned right around and began worshiping the very next set of false gods you came to. I delivered you from one set because Pharaoh was a god. And amongst the Egyptians were two and a half thousand other gods as well. And so they were forced into that worship of false gods. And then they're delivered from it and able to worship the Lord himself. And they choose not to. And in all of that, if you remember your history in your Bible, at the end of Genesis, the book of Genesis in chapter 50, you remember the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is one of the longer stories of an individual life found in your Bible. But if you remember what happened to him, he didn't exactly go to Egypt because he wanted to. Amen? Uh, His story is one of, um, shall we say, the brotherly love, kind of, sort of. Kind of the brotherly love like I had for my brother. We used to beat each other, throw rocks at each other. That, That was love. You just whack him in the forehead with a big rock. That was, I love you, man. Shoot an arrow up in the air and see if it could stick it in his head. Love you, man. Kind of brotherly love. Throw you in a well and hope you die. Love you, man. Sell you to a camel caravan as they go by. Love you, man. That's exactly what happened to him. So Joseph, even in the sense that he was being treated horribly by his own brothers, ends up in Egypt so much so that which Satan, the devil, meant for evil, God used for good. For he has sent me here ahead of you knowing this day. So, for all of that time, for the previous 400 years, and for the time that Joseph is in Egypt, God had it under control the whole time. He says, this is chastening. I'm going to let you guys be taken captive. You, you want to go and worship Baal? I'm going to change it around. You're not going to be able to do that. I gave you the promised land. I, I, I placed my life in you. I gave you everything. I brought you to the, to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and I'm giving you milk and honey, and, and I've shown you all these things. And so, because I love you, you're going to go someplace you don't want to go. But it's the love of a father. It's the love that no doubt was there in Joseph's life. And so the next thing we see picking up in verse 3, demonstrated in the wilderness wanderings. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. And Ephraim here is a a singular word that's used for the northern kingdom. Uh, It's also used specifically for the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, But look at what it says. It says, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. 
And I was to them who take the yoke from their neck, and I stooped and I fed them. He's saying, and what did you guys do? You turned to worshiping Ashtaroth and Molech. He taught them, he healed them, he bound them together, as Psalm 32 says. Not with a bit, and not with a bridle, not with a nose ring, not as he would an animal, but as he would as a son. He says, I just want to guide you a little bit. I'm trying to push you this direction. But like spoiled children, they just simply rebelled against him. You know, David, as he was writing the Psalms, one of the things he said in the very the second Psalm, he said, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords away. Instead of being drawn together by the cords of love, it's like, no, we don't want to be bound up by all those things. You know, we've got to do our own thing. That's human nature. And we're going to see that as we close in our final study. One of the things that marks the lives of those who are not walking in the center of God's will is a rebellious heart. It just can't be changed. It's constantly looking towards the wrong things. And here they they act like the sinful people that they are. God set them free, guided them to their inheritance. But within one generation of the death of Joshua, they had turned to the idolatrous practices of the land that they now inherited. One generation. You know, sometimes we talk about how far humanity has come. And in some ways, there are certain areas of life that we can talk about. Uh, Medical care is certainly one of those things. When you look at where medical care has come from since the Second World War to today, it's, it's staggering how amazing medical care has become. We have people living longer than they've ever lived on planet Earth, to be sure. So there are some good things that people can do. But we also have... Uh, One-third of the Internet, at least, and by some accounts, half, occupied by pornography. We, we have more than 50% of all marriages destroyed by divorce. We have 73.8% of all black children killed by abortion. There's a lot of things that we do. We look at, oh, well, we're we're so much better off. But in a lot of ways, pretty idolatrous. And and as sin goes, you see, when God corrects, he's trying to get our attention. It's like, man, you guys are going the wrong way. This is not the way I want you to go. This isn't what I saved you to do. I know it's hard to imagine, but can you imagine... When, at the founding of this, can you imagine at the, at the landing of the Mayflower? And they bring the Mayflower compact out, which basically says we've come here to serve God. And you pull that out, and then you go from there to the Continental Congress, which would have, our, our, our Congress would have never become what it was without the influence of pastors. Those pastors influenced the writing of those documents. And as they write those documents, what ultimately happens is we adopt a Christian worldview as our form of government. Now, you can say all day long they were deists or, you know, they weren't actually Christians. And I, I would agree with you in some cases. But nonetheless, the mark of Christ is all over, and especially in the life of James Madison who's the principal author of the Constitution. And so as you look at these things, it doesn't take a too far of a stretch for us to say, you know, when's our time coming? 
You know, how long are we going to be able to get away with these things before the Lord just says, you know, I've given you everything. I'll make no mistake. I bleed red, white, and blue. I am as American as American gets. And I was looking at those pictures, just reminding myself of... I was at the bus stop. Kind of I were at the bus stop when the first plane went into the first into Tower 2. I remember. I still get mad. I still get mad. You attacked my country. Can you imagine how God feels when He looks at this earth? His kids are getting attacked every day. They're attacked by sin. They're attacked by the ravages of the filth of this world. I would imagine he's pretty upset. Not because he hates people. He loves people. But he hates sin. It's like, what are you doing? Which brings us to the next point. And I love this one. Verses 5 through 7. God's love demonstrated by His long-suffering. Verse 5, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be His king, because they refuse to repent. Notice there's a specific reason given for why the Assyrian invasion came, which took over Ephraim, by the way. The northern kingdom. Wiped it out, basically. Because they wouldn't repent. It's a huge and a strong warning. Like God lets us go for so long and then he sends Assyrians. The Assyrians were barbarous, murderous. Some of those horrific things ever done to humankind were done by the Assyrians. One of their favorite tactics was to take their prisoners, grease a pole, slide it into their rear end, and put them alongside of the road and let them die a slow death as they slid down in the sun. Why am I telling you this? That's who God sent to do His bidding. Think about it. To His own chosen people, He sent the Assyrians to go straighten them out and to wipe out the northern kingdom because they would not repent. And that, by the way, is exactly why Billy Graham said what he said some 40 years ago. If God doesn't deal with America, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. That's why he said it. And the sword shall slash in his cities devour his districts and consume them because of their own counsel. They thought they were so wise amongst themselves. Took their own counsel, basically. My people are bent on backsliding from me. And though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. False religion. False repentance. Praise God, he's long-suffering. Now, I want you to recognize that by the time this happens, they've been out of Egypt for a thousand years. This is a long time later. 
God's saying, look, here's what I expect out of you. This is what I want to see happen. I've given you everything. I've done my part. It's time for you to do your part. They complained when they should have been praying. Giving thanks for God's mercy is what they should have been doing. Instead, they were complaining about what they didn't have. God's very long-suffering. As you look back on what God's done in your life, you need to be careful. And again, I'm just simply throwing this out there. You need to be careful that you don't forget what God has already done. Because that's a recipe for Assyrians. And I'm not suggesting that the Assyrians are going to necessarily show up at your doorstep and burn your house down and take you captive. But I am telling you that God incrementally works that way. And when you stop repenting and you stop hearing the word of the Lord and you keep doing exactly what he's told you not to do, it can get real ugly because he loves us. The next point here. God is long-suffering. He went a long time. He went more than nine centuries before he allowed the Assyrians to come. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. This is the Lord speaking. How, how can I do this? It grieves God's heart. If you're here and you're a parent, you know exactly what God's saying here. You know what it's like. You know with all your heart you are going to have to give that child exactly what you don't want to give. They, it's time for a spanking. I don't even remember the last time. It's been more than a decade since that was necessary in the Gill House. But the last time that I can remember, I was sick to my stomach. I'm walking up to the boys' room. I can't remember what it was. I'm not sure that I even did anything, but I know how I felt. It's like, Lord, this is not what I want to do. I was praying for a different result here, but it's not happening. They're not listening. And I'm going to have to do the very thing I don't want to do. Man, it just grieved my heart. It's the same thing with God. Multiplied times an infinite number of exponential dot, dot, dots. Think about it. Look what he says. My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Parents, you know exactly. You, you get there, it's just like, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to let him off the hook. I'm not going to say anything. Just the mere talking about it. You know, you just have that sympathy in for us as human beings. It's like, because you were dumber than they were. That's why we think that way. We're like, man, I can't punish them for something I did ten times worse. That isn't going to happen. But from God's perspective, it's like this. He created us. He knows exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and why you think what you think. He even knows your needs before you need them. So he's not put off by the fact that you did it. He's dismayed because you made a choice to rebel against the things that he's told you. 
It's the same thing in a very small way with parenting. You've laid down the rules of the home. You've said you can't do this, and if you do, this is what's going to be the the penalty of it. And you walk into that room, and your guts are churning, and everything within you says, "Nah, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to talk to him and let him go." But you know that won't change the direction. So, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. Please read that well. In other words, what it says, rendered from the Hebrew, is this. I will not give them all of my anger as it is. In other words, he was a lot more angry than the punishment that he delivered. Now, he allowed the Assyrians, think back on this. So he was more angry than them being wiped out. In other words, what they had done had so compromised their ability to to think and act as his children that it probably would have been better if he'd just gotten rid of all of them. But he didn't do that. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, holy one in your midst, and I will not come with terror. He says, it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt a lot, and you're going to remember exactly what it is, and you're going to know why I did it, but it won't be as bad as it can get. I'm going to leave room for repentance. And what a revelation this is, the compassionate heart of God. In other words, he had every right. That's why we say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. Amen? So in that, what we actually deserve is death and hell. But by grace, we don't receive that. I like to say when people ask me, well, you know, I, I think that there's a, there's, a, there's a sliding scale. I go, no, there isn't. There's either life in Christ and eternal life, which is by grace, or there's death and hell. Because when you get to heaven, the degrees of heaven won't matter. But I guarantee you this, you don't want the other option. And so anything that's better than hell, which is only eternal life, is really, really, really good. God's been in this business for a long time of not doing all that he could do. And if you remember, and I don't want to belabor this, but Genesis chapters 18 and 19 is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember how that started? Lord, if there's 50... If there's 50 people inside the city, will you spare the city? Will you relent? Uh-huh. Well, I looked around, there's not 50. How about 40, God? It actually started with 45 next. He, he went down by How about if there's 45, will you spare the city? Yep. 40? Uh-huh. 30? Yes. 20? Yes. Got down to 10. You see, that's how compassionate God is. So you know when God allows extreme measures, it's only because of extreme activity. And you know the rest of the story. And it was not a case of inhospitality. It was a case of the men of Sodom wanting to rape the two angels that God sent. The Hebrew text is very clear. Anybody that tells you the difference does not know what their Bible says. And it further goes on to describe, hey, I've got a couple of daughters. Why don't you do with them as you please? 
also in a sexual manner. So what God was saying was, I'll spare the city if there's anyone left in there that's righteous. I won't do all that I could do if there's anybody left there worth saving. And so the rest of the story is Lot and his family leaves and God destroys the city because that's all there was left in the whole city. So we can count on God's graciousness and his long-suffering and his faithfulness to his promises. But we dare not overlook what he says. God means business. And when he speaks things, he intends for us to listen and do. And I would also draw your attention that these people that we're talking about all lived under the law. Amen? They did not live under grace. They lived under a sacrificial system. They did not live under the grace and the mercy of God. And I would say to you, because we live under grace and because we live under mercy, I would think that God would have a higher standard for us because it's a whole lot easier to live under grace and mercy than it is under the law. And in fact, your Bible says that the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. So when God allows these things because of his loving kindness and wanting to deal with people for the sake of his goodness, out of his deep compassion and his faithfulness, I think when you sin against the flood of light, I think it's especially hurtful and harmful to us. And it brings things into our lives that we just don't ever want. He did that with the Jewish people. Notice he says, God's not a man. Numbers chapter chapter 23 says, if God, basically, paraphrasing, he says, if God's spoken, he's going to make it good. God's covenant with Abraham was unconditional. It won't change. So the nation was preserved. But it doesn't mean that he won't do a whole bunch of things short of taking out the nation itself. That's why it's important for us to understand this this absolutely consistent biblical tenet that God expects us when we know what he has said to do it. Being doers of the word, not just hearers only. Israel's possession of the land, the blessings in the land, were based on the covenant, but their enjoyment was based on obedience. You see, understand the difference? He was going to give them the land. The land was theirs. They would actually inherit it, and all that went with it. it. had the Jordan River, the land of milk and honey. It was a great place. They got to go there. But your enjoyment of God's blessings is based on what you do with them. That's why I have said so many times, blessings flow from obedience. If you want God's blessings, do what he says. If you want to test how far he will push you in punishment, be as rebellious as you like. If if you want to see what God will do to get your attention, continue doing everything that he says not to. Then again, you can look back to your parenting skills if you're here tonight and you're a parent. You know, when your kids do little dumb things, you kind of snicker, laugh, and you give them, you know, an extra couple of minutes of washing dishes or something. But if they're out, you know, tagging the neighbor's car and breaking out the windows, a little bit different punishment is coming their way. Amen? Including being chained to trees or whatever with dipped in honey and call the bears. I don't know. 
That was a, that was a metaphor. <laughs> In some of your homes, it... Uh, well, what can I say? And then in verse 10, we see this hope of the future restoration. Verse 10, it says, And they shall walk after the Lord, and he'll roar like a lion when he roars, and then his son shall come trembling from the west. Interesting that as we see the world today, that a large, the very largest portion of those who have returned to Israel have all come from the west. And matter of fact, when you land in Israel today, you land from the Mediterranean Sea, from the west uh, into Tel Aviv. And they shall come trembling like a bird of Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord, for Ephraim has encircled me with lies, and the house of Israel with it deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. Very often you'll find the declaration of judgment in Scripture right after the Lord has said something, and then he'll give a promise of hope, and that's what he does here. Hosea looks ahead to the end times when Israel's going to be gathered together. I believe those days are already upon us. How far we are into that prophetic clock, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I know it's a lot further than why I first gave my life to Jesus. I know that things could erupt in the Middle East. It could set in, in motion the very final things that are on the prophetic time clock, and so we're, we're close. You, you see, God says he's going to settle them in their homes. He's going to be long-suffering to them. Uh, what Jesus said to Jerusalem in his day, he, he said, I, I often wanted to gather you as my children, as a hen gathers her chicks, but you just simply weren't willing. You wouldn't come. But one day they're going to come. But it's going to take some things that your Bible describes in the book of Revelation, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Zechariah, the book of Isaiah, that are not good. And so that promise, that hope, that future restoration, he's going to inflict some time on them that's not going to be good, but it's because he loves them. And then finally, as we get to chapter 12, it says uh, here that for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, is what Proverbs says. Proverbs 3 says. And so he, he disciplines in the present to make sure that there's an opportunity for the future. He disciplines in the present so that there's an opportunity for a future. It's the same thing, again, that we do with our children. The reason I discipline my children is I want them to have a future. I know that if I were to, and this is, of course, an exaggeration, to allow them to just go rampantly wander through neighborhoods and steal whatever they want, that their future is going to be in an orange jumpsuit. Amen? So if I want them to have a future, I take my children, I say, you know what, you can't wander through the neighborhood and take anything that doesn't belong to you. And, of course, again, this is an exaggeration. To my knowledge, my children have never stolen anything. However, they were told that anything that was not theirs was somebody else's, and if it was somebody else's, to have it in their possession was stealing. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You you, you see, that's what God does. He says, because I want you to have a future. I don't want you to wear an orange jumpsuit and to spend all of your time in a 10 by 10 cell with a chrome toilet. Okay? I'm going to tell you some things that maybe seem a little bit difficult for you to understand when you're younger, but as you grow, you're going to get the picture to where you have a bright future ahead of you. And so God tells us these things in advance.
He gives us all that we need to know. Ephraim feeds on the wind, it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. And also they make a covenant with the Assyrians. And oil is carried to Egypt. They were living for vanity. They didn't get it. God wanted them to have a future. The only way for them to have a future was to not live this way. And so he says, look, this is what you're doing. Don't do this. Don't graze there. It's really an interesting thing when you, you know, if you've ever spent any time around cattle, we had some cattle growing up. But if you, if you get cattle, one of the reasons that you spend so much time mending fence, if you happen to be a cattle rancher, is cows are big and they're heavy and they're really hungry. And if there's grass in the next door pasture that's a little bit greener than the one that they're in and smells a little better, they will cut themselves to ribbons pushing right through a barbed wire fence to get to a little bit of green grass. They're not the sharpest tools in the shed. Cows are slightly smarter than sheep, but not a lot. Okay, So, so the word translated here, feed, means to graze. They're, they're basically ignoring the danger. The other thing that fences are good for is keeping the larger predators out. There's, there's a time to be enclosed. God knew that. And they're just going, man, the grass is green over there. We'll go munch on that. God's people were living without any acknowledgement that God had done anything for them. They're depending on the protection of these useless treaties with Assyria. It's, it's like, right, is this not the biggest joke in, in maybe ever in the history of the United States from, from the standpoint of our negotiations with anyone internationally? And we're actually putting Vladimir Putin as the head of our negotiating team to see if he can come up with some type of an agreement with the Syrians so that he can keep his port at Tartus and so that we basically don't bomb Syria into the Stone Age. It's the same thing here. You're making treaties with the enemy. It never works out well. Make treaties with the... Oh, let's make treaties with the Assyrians. They'll treat us fair for about eight minutes. Don't think the same. Don't act the same. They don't have the same morals. They don't have the same goals. don't have the same values. The same was true with the people of God, Israel, and the Assyrians and Egypt. It was just emptiness. It was chasing after the wind. And the Lord also brings charge against Judah. He'll punish Jacob according to his ways, according to the deeds. He will recompense him. In other words, you're going to get back to the reaping and sowing. You're going to get exactly what you've sown. You sow to the wind, you're going to get the whirlwind. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. And again, he's giving you the difference here between Jacob and Esau. And his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. And he wept and sought favor. And he found him in Bethel. And there he spoke to us. You remember the wrestling match that Jacob had with the angel of the Lord? His hip's out of place. He's done everything that he can possibly do. He, he's tried to connive and weasel his way around. And ultimately, he had to surrender to God. Amen? Ultimately, you got to surrender to God. God's going to win 100% of the time. You're not ever going to wrestle against the angel of the Lord. You're not going to wrestle against God and win. Period. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is 
his memorable name. And so you, by the help of God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. You, you see, he's, he's disciplining them in the present. There's a need for it. There's an example of it. He says, look, guys, you're named after Jacob, and I let him get pretty racked up. He, he's your forebearer. And I spanked him. Don't you think I'm going to spank you? It's an example of it. And then he gives the reason for it, picking up in verse 7. And, and you see at that Bethel experience, it included some pain. Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, died there giving birth to Benjamin. She called him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow, and changes his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. And you find the name of God here, the Lord of hosts. He says, this is who I am. And if these people whom I love, I don't change. My character doesn't get altered because of the situation. I am who I am is basically what God is saying. Jacob was broken. He experiences his wife. Raises his family. He sees God's discipline. He sees that scheming and lying go nowhere. He sees all that stuff. He says, guys, there's a reason for all this. Verse 7, a cunning Canaanite, deceitful scales are in his hand. Notice these things. There are some principles here. Total dishonesty in business. Deceitful scales are in his hand. What he's saying is the scale is supposed to be absolutely equal and even. And so on his side, you have a, a little bit extra so that he always comes out on the good end. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I've become rich. I've found wealth for myself in all my labors. And they shall find in me no iniquity that's sin. Would you look at that word that's used there? Find no iniquity that's a stain that is sin. Does that sound a little contradictory to you? He's saying to himself, shall find no iniquity that is sin. Iniquity by its very definition is sin. This is justification of sin. That's what he's saying. He, he says, I, I, I'm so pridefully arrogant in myself that my sin isn't actually sin. Now, if you do it, it's going to be sin. But not me. Because I have a special dispensation. I can do whatever I want. Not the way God works. But I am the Lord your God. And ever since the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. He said, don't you remember what I did to you last time? Are you listening? Hello? It's me, Lord God of hosts. The one that brought you out of Egypt, and you know what happened to you after that? Forty years in the, huh? In the where? Uh, did, you, did you like that out there? Sinai's kind of cold in the winter. It's a little overly warm in the summer. Remember that little deal? He said, I haven't changed. I have also spoken by the prophets. I've multiplied the visions. I've given symbols through a witness of the prophets. He said, I've been speaking to you since day one. Innate within every human being is a basic understanding of the character and nature of God. 
I may express it in all kinds of different ways, but the basic character, that's why universally people don't want to murder. Universally they know that taking somebody else's stuff is wrong. Universally they know that lying is not a good thing. These are all universal things etched into the very soul of human beings that God put there to give us a desire to turn to him. So that he could point to those things and say, see, you feel this way because I actually made you. I know how you are. I've spoken to you. I've given you symbols. Witness of the prophecy. He says, all these people, you know, these guys, remember Moses? I sent you Moses. Joshua? I sent you Joshua. Patriarchs, those are, those are my boys. I sent them to you. And though Gilead has idols, surely they're vanity. And though they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. He says, he says you guys keep going the wrong way. I keep speaking to you and speaking to you and speaking to you and speaking to you, but you keep going the wrong way. What do you expect? Haven't I always done the same thing? You cry out to me, I save you. You repent, I receive. But you keep doing this, you're going to get exactly what you've always gotten, in trouble. It won't be good. Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a spouse. Remember the story? Seven years? Well, let's make it another seven years. And for a wife he tended sheep. And by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet he was preserved. For Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly, and therefore the Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his reproach upon him. And so he begins to just simply name these sins, dishonesty in business, pride, they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't obey the word, they were violent, they did things their own way. Because God loves us, he's going to chasten us. So when you see that hand, that's God telling you, Hello, it's me. It's still wrong. It was wrong last week. It's still wrong this week. And if you keep doing it, things are not going to go well for you. It's exactly how we talk to our kids, isn't it? That's what God does. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. It was not good two and a half thousand years ago. It's still not good today. If you keep going that way, you're going to leave me no choice because I love you to give you something you don't want to get your attention so you will stop so that you'll turn to me. The Lord warned that he would humble them. Instead of enjoying their houses, they'd live in tents. And when the Assyrians were through with Israel, the Jews would be grateful even for booths. Now you know why they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. That's why. It actually celebrates ultimately their joy for having a house made of sticks after what they went through in the captivity both Assyrian and Babylonian. So the Jews celebrate, Yay, we have a house made of sticks! Happy, happy, joy, joy. Yay! 
Look at my booth. You know what they don't remember? Why they had the booths in the first place. Because they didn't want the milk and honey. They didn't want the land of promise. They didn't want the joy with came, that came with obedience, the blessings that came with obedience. They wanted to be disobedient and take the stuff that they could get from Assyria and take the stuff that they could get from worshiping Molech and Baal and Ashtaroth. And so they said, well, well, we'll take what's behind door number two, please. We already know what's behind door number one. We'll take what's behind door number We can't see it. So Connie and I have figured out that we, we, we now know that we're old because we actually like to watch Wheel of Fortune <laughs> and Jeopardy. It's like our hour of game shows. We're like, yes, Jeopardy's on. Harmless. But I'm always amazed at the people on, on Wheel of Fortune. They're, they're spinning the wheel and they got, you know, they've got, well, you can keep the 13 grand you have or you can get, maybe there's something good behind this thing. I'll spin. Thank you very much. And bankrupt every time. You know, it's just like, it's like just for a little bit more, you know, just give away everything I have. It's like your brain shuts off. You see something good that you might be able to have. And whoop. It's humankind. You've got to be careful. It's still a temptation. You don't want to be living in a booth in the Feast of Tabernacles. Amen? Seriously. Think about it for a second. I don't know what the Lord's going to do. Sometimes I wonder. You know, matter of fact, I'm relatively convinced that the Lord is at least allowing what's going on in our country right now to get the church to wake up, to get us to be vibrant with our faith. See, you know what? Uh, you want to live in booths? I'll give you a little, give you a little heads up. I, I had a pre-meeting with a very dear friend, Anson McDaniels. He's going to be doing a seminar here, so you guys will all know how to navigate Obamacare because it's coming. And he did not cancel the individual mandate, so every last one of you is either going to have health insurance, you're either going to sign up on a government plan, or you're going to pay a tax penalty, which is going to come, it's going to have a little form, a little line on your new income tax forms that say, do you have health insurance? And if you answer no, there's a penalty for every member of your family. So the reason I'm telling you this is sometimes I wonder if all these things aren't like, well, you want to trust in horses and chariots in Assyria? We'll just give you all that stuff. Here it is. Just have it. See how that works out for you. So then you get what you've earned. Me, I want what I haven't earned. I'll take mercy, thank you. I'll take grace, thank you very much. The only way to get that is to do what he says. Repent. Ask the Lord to be the, the head, not make him the tail. Frankly, we know when we're about to get a spanking. You ever notice how your children respond? They know they've done something wrong. You can't find them. They're hiding. They're underneath. They're in the kitchen cabinets. You know. What did you do? Nothing. I'll never forget this one time I asked. I think it was Brandon. I didn't even remember what they did, but I asked him, Do you need a spanking? He said, Yes. <laughs> It's like he, he knew he didn't get one because I couldn't stop laughing. But, but that's the way God is. He already knows what we did, and He's waiting for us. You know what? I'm an idiot. 
I've sinned, I've done wrong, I shouldn't have done it, I repent, I won't do that anymore, and then not do it. That's going, yes, I need a spanking. You don't want that. Good news is, you can have love instead of discipline, or you can have discipline because God loves us. Choice is yours. As for me, I like love better. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight, and Lord, we thank you for the example that we have in your word of of just what it means to, to follow you, to love you, to serve you, to walk after you in your ways. And so, God, we commit our lives to you again afresh and anew. Uh, show us those changes that we need to make so that we can be in the center of your will. Help us to never follow after the Assyrians or the Egyptians, the Babylonians, Lord, the Moabites, and those that were already in the land of promise but didn't have the promises. Lord, we want the promises. And so, Lord, we know uh, that you've told us that if we will simply uh, listen to your voice and obey you, that we have your will. And, Father, we praise you for that. We ask that you would bless us and anoint us to simply be that light that we should be in this world, that salt that we should be in this world, Lord. Help us to walk uprightly with our God, giving you honor and glory and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.